Okay, so last week, uh, Chris kicked off the Samson portion of our Judges series, and this might be the most well-known judge that we're going to talk about in the book of Judges. Uh, So when you think of Samson, what are some things that come to your mind? Like, what do you think of when you think of Samson? Super buff. What else? Hair, long hair. Um, They won't know who that is, Courtney. They won't know who Fabio is. Do you guys know who Fabio is? They know who Fabio is. Well, that was one person, I think. Um, so there's, it's, it's probably the one person that you're like, yeah, I have some reference, biblical reference for who this person is. You, you think back when you were maybe taught about him um, in, uh, in like earlier years, elementary. But um, if you remember back on, Gideon might be the other one that you think about, that you know some things about him. But we talked about Gideon, that he was this weak man who became strong. Well, Samson's a little bit reversed. He is a strong man with many weaknesses. He has lots and lots of weaknesses. So he's physically strong, but he's also, he's violent, he's lustful, he's impulsive. You're going to see how selfish he is in today's story. And the most disturbing thing about the story of Samson is that God God seems to use his sin to accomplish his will. And so we're going to wrestle with a a really hard truth today, which is it's the idea of God's sovereignty, but also like how God can use sometimes really messy situations to bring about his purposes and his will. So look at Judges chapter 14. We're going to start in verse, uh, look, look at verses 1 through 3. And it says, Samson went down to Timnah, and at Timnah he saw one of the daughters of the Philistines. Then he came up and he told his father and mother, and listen, when I read the words of Samson, I I think it it sounds like caveman language, or maybe like Arnold. It sounds like Arnold is is saying this. Um, He says, I saw one of the daughters of the Philistines at Timnah. Now get her for me as my wife. Okay? But his father and mother said to him, is there not a woman among the daughters of your relatives or among all our people? You must go and take a wife from the uncircumcised Philistines. But Samson said to his father, with your best Arnold impersonation, get to the for me, right? For she is right in my eyes. That's, a, that's an interesting way of communicating, but he says she is right in my eyes. And so Samson, he wants to marry a Philistine. If you remember what Chris said last week, God hands Israel over to the Philistines for 40 years But when Samson is born, an angel appears to Samson's mother and tells her, Samson's going to deliver Israel from the Philistines. And so now Samson is telling his parents that he wants to marry one of the Philistines. So this is not really going according to plan because his parents think of Samson. He's going to deliver us from these awful people. But Samson's saying, you know, I want to actually, I want her to be my wife, this Philistine woman. Now, back then, parents were involved in the marriage decision. Now, you might not like the idea of that, how that sounds, but that's what happened back then. But in this situation, he does, he is kind of going through his parents. He's saying, go get her for me as a wife. But he's sort of going in reverse because back then, parents would often choose for their kids, like, who they're going to marry. Now, how many of you guys would love for that to happen today? Would you like that? Probably not, right? And, uh... But Samson reverses the tables, and he tells his, 
his parents, what they're going to do for him. He says, go get her for me as my wife. And he wants to marry this, this Philistine woman. Now, um, so what do his parents say? They say, why don't you take a wife from one of our people? Now, it was common back then for people to marry within close relatives back then. Like, did you guys know that Abraham, this is a shocker, Abraham and Sarah, half-brother, half-sister, did you know that? That's in the Bible. Yes, very, very strange. And, uh, and so back then, it was common for people to marry within close relatives. And this is all before Arkansas, right? Okay, so, um, so you can imagine this. Let's plan a family reunion so we can find you a wife. Like, this is what is happening with Samson. Now, Samson's response to his parents' suggestion, he says, he says, she is right in my eyes. So he's, this, that's, that's Hebrew for she's hot. And, uh, and so now God commands Israel. Now we know that God commanded Israel not to intermarry with other nations. This was not a racial thing. This was a religious thing. It was to prevent Israel from falling into idolatry. If you remember, though, Moses married a non-Israelite. But she was also someone that embraced the covenant or embraced the, God's people and embraced Yahweh as, as God. And so this wasn't about race, but more about religion and idolatry. And this is why God said for them not, for them, for them not to intermarry. Uh, here's why this is so important. Because this, this might seem off topic. We're going to get back to the story here in a moment. But in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verses uh, 14 to 16, it says this. It says, do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers for what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness or what fellowship has light with darkness what accord has Christ with Belial or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever what agreement has the temple of God with idols for we are the temple of the living God now at first glance when Paul writes this in 2nd Corinthians at first glance it might seem like I don't know kind of self-righteous you know, don't hang out with unbelievers because you're, you're better than them or something like that. This is not what Paul is saying, by the way, in 2 Corinthians. Listen, you should have, we should all be people that are reaching out and have connections with unbelievers, friendship with unbelievers, but you've got to make sure that they're not pulling you away from God. And so Paul uses a word here, don't be unequally yoked. So what does the word yoked mean? Well, it is any relationship where you are tempted to compromise what you believe in order to stay in the relationship. Being yoked to someone is when you're tempted to compromise what you believe to stay in the relationship. So examples could be things like business partnerships or uh, certain friendships might be considered being yoked because you're a believer, they're not a believer, and they're kind of pulling you away from Christ. That'd be an example here. But I think it especially applies to things like marriage and dating. So if, if it would apply to a business partnership or business relationship, then why wouldn't it also apply to the most intimate kind of relationship, marriage or dating? And I think that d definitely fits here. Now you might think to yourself, well, you know, why is, we did, we did a relationship series back in the fall, we know that, and we talked about dating a lot. And you might say, um, well, why is dating an unbeliever such a big deal? Well, here's why, because um, I think it's the relationship where you're most tempted to compromise because it is an emotionally entangling relationship. And if you consider yourself a follower of Christ, a believer, and this other person is not claiming that or even not a strong believer at that, 
then I would say it would fit under the idea of being unequally yoked. So if, you're, if you consider yourself a follower of Christ and you're dating someone who is not a believer at all, I'll be very blunt. Like, you need to end that relationship. That should not be a relationship that you're involved in, at least in the dating sense of the word. And you might say, well, that's not loving. Listen, it's the most loving thing you can do for someone towards them. Even if they start doing, like, Christian things, right? Like, you say, well, I'm trying to reach them. Okay, that's fine. But if they start doing, quote-unquote, Christian things, well, because of your influence, you don't know if that's because they really want to or because they're doing it for you, to please you. This is why this is so important, I think. You can't really get a, 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 an honest read on someone unless they, they have no entanglements so they can make their own decisions to follow Christ, not just to satisfy what they think you want them to do. So if you go back to the Samson story, this is, I think, all why God is not wanting his people to get involved in these unequally yoked relationships, individually, but also as a nation. And so when we go back to the Samson story, we can see two early warning signs in his life. Number one, Samson has no self-control. No self-control. And secondly, he is rebellious against authority. Samson has the personality where his impulses control everything he does. He sees something, he just takes it. You know, there are two good uh, predictors, like when I've worked with students throughout um, the last couple of decades, there are at least two predictors I can usually look at when they're in high school. That you can, if, if they stay on that pathway, you can say that their life will become a train wreck, and it's this, it's rebellious against authority, and it's following their impulses. So no self-control and rebellion against the, the authority God's placed in their lives. Um, I've seen this play out countless times, where you can see, like, the, tra the trajectory of someone's life and where it's headed, and you just go, this is going to be a train wreck, and then you hear five, six years down the road after they finish high school, and it's, it, it's still going that direction, and you hear all kinds of stories of what's happened since they've left high school. I heard one this past week that just broke, broke my heart as far as, like, where this one person is at today. And so I hear the stories all the time, but there's one thing I look back on and say, it's, it's no self-control. And it's an unwillingness to submit to people that God has put in their lives. This is really the story of Samson. Look down at um, Judges 14, verse 4, where it says, His father and mother did not know that it was from the Lord, meaning going after this Philistine woman, for he was seeking an opportunity against the Philistines. At that time, the Philistines ruled over Israel. Okay, this verse is very complicated. Because on the one hand, Samson is pursuing this Philistine woman, and that is sinful. But then somehow, God's going to use that sin for his purposes. We've got to be careful here because James chapter 1, verse 13 says, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. So we can't ever say that God is the author of evil, or that God tempted me, or that God caused me to do something evil. But we can say, this is biblical to say, that God can use evil that we commit to bring about his ultimate plan. 
So James is clear that, that none of us can say that God is tempting us or God is, is, is the author of evil in any way. And, and so it might sound surprising, this idea, that God is against evil. Um, he's not the author of evil. But he uses evil sometimes to accomplish his purposes, to redeem it. This concept may sound surprising, but I'm not really sure it should when you consider what happened at the cross. You got these evil men committing the most evil act in history, but God somehow uses it to offer salvation to all of mankind. In Acts chapter 2, verse 23, it says, This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. So at the cross, we have an example, I think the, the best example of God taking the most evil, the most horrific act ever committed on this earth and somehow turning it on its head and using it to bring about the redemption of mankind. And we see smaller examples of the same thing all throughout the scriptures. We see it here in the story of Samson. God's going to use Samson's sin somehow to bring about something greater for Israel. Now listen, we can never say in those moments, well, the sin was okay. Or that God gives a thumbs up to sin. Just like you and I can never say of our own lives, well, you know, I did that thing, I did that horrible thing, but you know what? Look what it led to. It led to something great, and so Therefore, the sin itself was good. We can never say that. It is true that God somehow redeems these situations. We can never say the sin itself was the good thing. We cannot say that. So God, God's will, so God's going to use uh, Samson's sin. God's going to use Samson's sin to pull Israel out of sin. And I think God does that sometimes. He, he can use our sin to pull us away from sin. I think we see this in our lives as well. So I think for, for many of us, you might be walking through a, a time right now in your life where um, something was found out. Like maybe you had something that you were hiding from people and it was found out but from parents or other people in your life that are in authority over you. And right now you're feeling the pain of that. But what can happen sometimes is that God uses that exposure. God uses that that thing you're walking in, to pull you out of that thing, whatever it is that you might be involved in. I think God can, is doing that here. God uses Samson's sin to pull Israel as a nation out of sin. God wants to disentangle the Israelites from the Philistines. And he's, he's using Samson's sin to bring that about. So look down at Judges 14, verses 5 through 7, where it says, Then Samson went down with his father and mother to Timnah. And they came to the vineyards of Timnah, and behold, a young lion came toward him roaring. Then the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon him, and although he had nothing in his hand, he tore the lion in pieces as one tears a young goat. But he did not tell his father or his mother what he had done. Then he went down and talked with the woman, and she was right in Samson's eyes. Now, try to imagine what this scene must have looked like. You've got the most powerful land animal, this apex predator. The lion is lunging at Samson, and it says he tears it apart with his bare hands. 
Like you, I know you, you have seen like those, those like shows when animals attack. You've seen um, lions and animals like this just rip into a gazelle and how they just make mincemeat of something small like that. Well, Samson's doing this to the animal that normally does that. And he just rips this lion apart. And I love how the writer helps us understand this because it's like he's saying, well, if you can't wrap your mind around this idea, it's like when you tear into a young goat because we all know what that's like, right? You, you, we do that all the time. Right? That's a normal Thursday for us. And, uh, but what's interesting about the story is that it says he doesn't tell his parents. Now, if you killed a lion with your bare hands, do you think you'd probably tell some people about that? I think that I would. But it says he doesn't tell his parents. So why doesn't he tell his parents? Well, here's what happens here in the story. Because he had taken this thing called a Nazarite vow. He was like supposed to have this vow for his whole life. And, uh, and a Nazarite wasn't supposed to touch anything dead. So he violated that principle here. So he hides the truth from his parents so he won't get in trouble with the Nazarite vow. We'll, we'll explain more what that means in a moment with the Nazarite vow. But Samson rips this lion apart, and then he goes down to see the woman. Now, what a scene that must have been. Like, it says that, he says that she was right in his eyes, but I could bet that once she saw his long flowing hair and his big muscles stained with lion blood, I'm sure that he was right in her eyes as well, right? And uh, so it's like this crazy scene where after he kills this lion, rips it to shreds, he shows up to go talk to the girl. Like, it's kind of good timing, right? And so look down at verses 8 and 9. It says, after some days, he returned to take her, and he turned aside to see the carcass of the lion. And behold, there was a swarm of bees in the body of the lion and honey. He scraped it out into his hands and went on, eating as he went. And he came to his father and mother and gave some to them, and they ate. But he did not tell them that he had scraped the honey from the carcass of the lion. Now, why does all this matter about the lion and honey, and what, what, what is he saying? Before we unpack what happened in the passage, you've got to understand what the Nazarite vow was about. So anyone, male or female, could take this thing called a Nazarite vow, and it was voluntarily committed to. It was for, made for a period of time, and it was to serve God in some special way. And uh, so they committed to abstain from certain things, like um, not because those things were sinful, but it was so they could, it was kind of like what you, how you might think of fasting today. So we, we fast for a short, a short amount of time to, to pray. And uh, it doesn't mean that food is sinful, but they're going to abstain from food as they pray. And so this person would abstain from certain things um, so they could devote themselves in service to God. So that would mean they can't eat or drink anything from the vine. So that means no wine, no grapes of any kind, no raisins, but who cares because raisins are disgusting. So it's like there's anything from the vine they can't have, right? And uh, other things as well. They couldn't cut their hair. Um, they would not go near anything that was dead, and if they did... They had to present themselves to the priest for cleansing. So this is why what happens here in the story is such a big deal because Samson's violating all of these things. 
He's touching something dead. He's not just touching what's dead. He's using the dead animal for his plate. Like, that's how he's violated this Nazarite vow. So after some days pass, he returns to find the woman, and it says, what does it say? It says he just takes her. Then he walks past the lion that he killed. He sees a swarm of bees in the lion making honey, and he reaches in to take the honey, and he goes home and gives some to mom and dad because his mother had also taken the Nazarite vow as well. So now he's causing his mom to sin, but she doesn't know she's sinning by eating this honey from the lion. So we see with, with Samson a, a quality where he, he has no self-control. When he sees what he wants, he just takes it. He sees the girl, he just takes her. He sees the honey, he just takes it. He's causing his parents to sin here as well. I'm going to summarize for you Judges, uh, 10, or Judges 14, verses 10 to 13. The story kind of gets crazy and complicated, and it turns into some chaos. I want to explain how this happens. So Samson's father goes down to join him, and the, the Bible says that he prepares, Samson prepares this big feast. Now, what's implied in this feast is that there's lots of alcohol involved, and everyone's getting drunk at this party. This is kind of like a pre-marriage celebration with this woman. So then 30 of Samson's Philistine friends show up, and Samson does something kind of strange. He tells them a riddle. Anybody have friends like that that, like, tell you things to figure out, puzzles to figure out? Um, maybe you are that friend. I don't know. But Samson does this with, the, with these 30 people that show up to this wedding. And he tells them a riddle. And he says, if you can solve the riddle, then I'm going to give you 30 changes of clothes, one for each person that's at this party, these 30 people. But if you cannot, you guys are going to give me 30 changes of clothes. Now, that's a lot of clothing today even bigger back then because clothing was not like some, you didn't just go buy stuff. Like you had to make stuff. And clothing was really expensive. So he is, um, there was a lot of wealth wrapped up in clothing. So he's trying to put this riddle to his friends. If they can solve it, then he's going to have to give them a bunch of money essentially. But if, they, if, if, if he solves it or if they can't solve it, then they've got to give him 30 changes of clothes. Now skip down to Judges 14 verse 14. It says, and he said to them, here's the riddle. Out of the eater came something to eat. Out of the strong came something sweet. And in three days, they could not solve the riddle. So why is he doing this? Well, he's trying to gain wealth. He's trying to gain prestige. We see with Samson, he's always looking for shortcuts, Right? I mean, how many of you guys, when, you're gonna, when, when you get married one day, people are going to bring you gifts to your wedding, most likely, if they like you. And, uh, but he's actually trying to cheat his guests out of money when they come to this party he's going to host. And uh, so he's impulsive, he's selfish, he's, um, he's trying to gain wealth and prestige, always looking for shortcuts. And for the rest of the story, I want you to see how Samson creates just absolute chaos everywhere he goes. So the passage says that Samson, if you skip down a little further, it says that Samson's now married to this woman. And it says these 30 people, they go to Samson's wife and they try to get her to tell them the riddle. Because she's like one of their sisters. She's a Philistine woman. So they're like, maybe she'll cave. Maybe she knows the riddle. 
and we can ask her what the riddle is. If she tells us, we tell him, we get our money, we get our clothing. But Samson hasn't told his wife what it means, so she doesn't know. So she goes to Samson one night, and she's begging and pleading with her husband to tell her the riddle. And he finally caves. He finally gives in. He tells her, and then she goes back and tells the people. They go back to Samson, and they say, they say, what is sweeter than honey, and what is stronger than a lion? So they've solved the riddle. So now Samson is angry, like really angry. And he burns with anger. He has this rage with anger. He turns into the Incredible Hulk, and the Bible says that he kills 30 Philistines, and then he takes, like not those people, but 30 other Philistines, he takes their clothes and then gives them to those 30 people. It's like he's saying, okay, so you want your clothes? Well, I just killed 30 of your friends, took their bloodstained clothing, and now you can have it. This is how vindictive he was and how how chaos-creating Samson was. And then, because he wants to pout, he goes back to his father's house. He goes back to his father's house. And here's what happens next. To get back at Samson, so he's away from his wife now, so to get back at Samson, this woman's father gives her to Samson's best man at the wedding. Like, the, the plot thickens, all right? So he thinks, well, Samson's out of the picture, so I'm just going to retaliate now by giving her to Samson's best man at the wedding. This is like a, an episode for talk TV, I think. I don't know. Um, and then I'm going to summarize for you Judges 15. Here's what it says. This is a summary of it. So in anger, Samson then goes and burns all the grain fields of the Philistines. The Philistines retaliate by killing, they now kill Samson's wife and father-in-law. So now they're killing their own people, a Philistine woman and a Philistine man, to get back at Samson. You see, they had no regard for human life, nor did Samson. Then the Israelites are now upset at Samson for angering the Philistines. And the Israelites, they turn Samson over to the Philistines, and then Samson then kills a thousand Philistines with a donkey jawbone. You may have heard some of these stories, but just didn't piece them all together. And not sure how you kill somebody with a donkey jawbone, but he somehow found a way to do that. And uh, what we see, though, we spend a lot of time just walking through the story. So what is the story really about? We see this person, Samson, who is supremely gifted externally, but he's really broken on the inside. Like, he's got a lot of issues. So you can see it play out in the story. That he's got this, um, this immense strength. He's got this, I mean, he's decisive. We'll give him that. But he's got this, this gifting that God has placed on him, but he is extremely broken on the inside. It is possible to be really gifted at some things, to be even doing ministry, even what you might say is God's work, but be a complete wreck on the inside. It's possible to have the gifts of the Spirit, but lack the fruit of the Spirit. Tim Keller says it like this, the gifts of the Holy Spirit can operate in us even mightily, and we can be helping people and leading movements, 
yet our inner personal lives can still be a complete wreck. In fact, this pattern is so common that there, that there may regularly be a link between an impressive outer life and a broken inner life. Some people who are the most vigorous and effective in teaching, counseling, and leadership are in their private lives giving into temptation, discouragement, anger, and fear. The most important thing about us is our character. The most important thing about you and about me is what God is doing on the inside of us in our hearts. We see in Samson someone who God was using him externally. He had these external gifts, but he was severely broken on the inside. He had no character. And it's possible to have some gifts, but to be completely shallow in our character. And it's really scary, especially for people like me in these positions that we call vocational ministry, because we can often hide our broken inner life behind an impressive outer one. And we can trick ourselves into thinking, well, I'm, I'm doing these things. I'm doing these activities. I'm doing some good things. And yet, we're totally broken on the inside. Completely broken on the inside. And lack character. Uh, about over 10 years ago, um, as a church staff, we went and visited some churches in the Orlando, Florida area. And one of the pastors that we went to go visit was this guy you see in the picture here named Joel Hunter. He was a pastor of a large church in Orlando, Florida. And we spent time with him for a couple hours in a room just talking to him as a staff and asking questions about their church and just how they do certain things. And um, I think he planted the church many, many years ago. And, um, and he was, it seemed like a very gracious man, a man that... Um, you know, I think has done ministry for a long time, so we wanted to learn from him and, and, and see what that his church could, um, could help us grow in as a church. And so we talked with him the first part of this one day. Then we go across town to another church. Go to the next picture. And this is his son. His, this is his son, Isaac, Isaac Hunter. And his son, who grew up at his dad's church, also felt called to go into ministry full-time. And... Uh, his son eventually planned a church on a different part of town. And so we visit father and son, both pastors of large churches in Orlando. And I think his son's church had taken an old movie theater and gutted out the walls and built this massive church on the inside of this big movie theater. And I mean, the place looked really nice. It was very well kept. Uh, he seemed pretty put together. And we met with his, his staff, and, and he kind of told us the story of his church. They started with like 90 people, and it just grew and grew and grew to a church of about 5,000 people. Just a pretty amazing story of, of God using him to, to build the church in Orlando. And then several years ago, I hear a tragic story that this man that you see in the picture committed suicide. And the story is that the whole thing was a big charade. Of course, he was doing some good things, some great things, but what we didn't know was that, and I, I can look back now and say, he did seem kind of depressed when we're talking to this guy. Something seemed a bit off, but that's all in hindsight. But I think the story was that he committed adultery with someone in his congregation, and he ran off with her, and 
in, in realizing the devastation he'd brought to his family, to his, his church, to his congregation, to his parents, he decides in his own logic, in his own warped logic, that I, I think I can love my family better if I'm just not here. And so he takes his own life. Just a tragic story. But I couldn't help but think back on that story and think about how, as a warning for us, that so many of us that are involved in ministry, whether it's a vocation, whether it is something you're doing just as a volunteer, whatever the case might be, many of us think that me doing the good things externally means that the inside is okay. And very often it's not the case. In fact, sometimes we use what's happening on the outside to mask what's really happening on the inside. I think we see that here in the story of Samson. So a few things I want you to understand as we think about how this applies to us. So what do we do about it? The first point is this. Recognize the distinction between gifts and fruit. Recognize the a difference between gifts and fruit. Fruit of the Spirit, meaning what God wants to work in you, and then the gifts should flow out of that. And there's a difference there. Many of us think we, we can see all that we do and think it's evidence of us being right with God, but inside we're harboring secret sin or propping up idols or giving in temptation. The next point is this. Recognize our prayer life rather than religious activities is the best indicator of spiritual health. If you look at the story of Samson, if you read through it on your own, you'll see that prayer is often an afterthought for him. That he often prayed as a last resort, and even then, he, when he prayed, he would pray selfishly. And we see that in ourselves as well sometimes. And then lastly, recognize our need to avoid Lone Ranger Christianity. Samson is known for how alone he was. Doesn't take advice. He doesn't listen. He is like this Captain Chaos, one-man wrecking crew in the story. You know, no one is close enough to him to challenge or to critique him. And you see it all throughout the, the story of Samson. So um, I know it's kind of late right now, but this is why we have you guys Sundays and Wednesdays getting involved in groups and on Sundays and Wednesdays because you have to have the mindset I can't be a Lone Ranger Christian. I can't be someone who's just isolated and alone. And so this is why you need the body 